can't believe you two took that raving lunatic seriously. What do you think this is? <laughs> Hey, uh, what's going on? How are you doing? I'm good. Good. A beautiful Friday here in New York. Yeah, it's, um, looks like it's going to be a Golden Graham day. Yeah, definitely. Thanks for jumping on the podcast. Oh, thank you. I really appreciate it. Yeah, um, I feel like uh, we've known each other for a long time. We don't, we don't get to talk as much as we as as you know we should probably mm-hmm. um Agreed. so let's let's you know talk about the, um so you originally you're from where i'm from memphis tennessee memphis mm-hmm. you grew up there mostly um yeah there were two years like eighth and ninth grade where i was in north carolina my family moved to a small town there because uh, mm. my stepfather had a job, but we moved right back and all of my family still lives in Memphis, except mm. for my sister who's getting a PhD in, in North Texas. But other than that. Was that yeah. where you went to like uh, high school and grammar school? And- yeah, it's where, yeah, it's where I went. It's where all of my family lives. And yeah. Did, uh, so um, was, was high school a place where you started getting into creative um, elements or was that later on in your career? You know, I think I I was actually inspired by film from a very young age. Mm. Um, My mom and stepfather let us watch anything that we wanted. The only exception was Deer Hunter. I had (laughs) to wait until I was like 11 or 12 to watch that because my mom felt like it was too psychologically damaging for me to watch (laughs) it as a little kid. But pretty much anything else was free reign. Um, you know, I begged her to take me to see Kramer versus Kramer. I was like five or something, six. She did. We went to the movie theater, saw it together and discussed it afterwards. I was never interested in cartoons. I liked films that were made for grownups. So I always had that sort of love for it. I hung out with a lot of people in the arts and mm-hmm. um, high school, so I just have something on my hair. Um, but the thing is, is that I was really a jock in high school. Um, oh. I, played multiple, I played multiple sports, volleyball and softball in high school and basketball to some degree, but volleyball and softball and won a lot of awards and was recognized as you know, a good softball pitcher and one of the top people on our volleyball team. And I loved it and it was great. So that took up so much of my time. I mean, mm. I would do some videos um like I, I remember we in biology class we were doing something on recycling and how important it was and i was so excited to go to the recycling center <laughs> in memphis because in memphis they didn't have any collection outside your own house you had to oh. make an effort to recycle and oh. so i got so into it and made a huge video and it became it was sort of viral for what viral was at that time and oh. that was fun but but as far as creative stuff, I more was there to just, you know, make sure like the theater kids didn't do too much acid because I didn't do drugs. So I would mm-hmm. go to their parties and just make sure that they were okay. During, you <laughs> during were the acid. designated driver of sorts. Totally, totally. That, that was <laughs> as close to creativity I sort of got in a way. What, um, so what was the first thing that you, like first film or 
thing that you worked on to, to shoot? Yeah, in my early 20s, I was really into some feminist uh, short films. Like one was called, one is, um, one is not born a woman, one becomes one. It's a Simone de Beauvoir quote. And it sort of mm -hmm. looked at actually women in public spaces, how all the statues are male that we normally see. It's very interesting. Mm -hmm. So it was coming from a feminist perspective on that. But I also had a brother, um, my older brother, who was much older than I am, he died of AIDS in the 90s or complications from AIDS. And so mm -hmm. I did a documentary about that. And those were all done on Super 8. So it was a little bit different oh, wow. and was, you know, it, it was really experimental and fun to do those. And then before I got them digitized, somebody stole them. So I'm very, oh. it's, it like breaks my heart. And, and mainly it breaks my heart because I don't think they knew what they stole. So I, unless they had a projector, it probably just went in the trash. Like otherwise, why are you right. really trying to find it? So, you know, it's one thing if they steal something, you're like, oh, that ring or something, at least somebody's gonna wear it or appreciate right. it. You can just, I, I could be okay with that or if I lost something, but knowing that it's out there and was probably just tossed away, just breaks well, I, I sympathize with you completely. I. So uh, probably in the 97, 98 area, I, um, I was working on a, this dream script that I had always wanted to work on. And I was like, all right, I'm going to get up every morning at 6.30. I'm going to run. And then I'm going to go over to the city. And I'm going to sit in the coffee shop. I'm going to work on this script until it's finally done. And um, I would go to, there was a Barnes and Noble on um, Broadway near 23rd Street at the time. I remember that one. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so I would go in there and I would, because it was great, you know, you could sit there and work. I could mm -hmm. use all their books for resources, <laughs> references, so it was yeah. really cool. And I went and I wrote, I wrote the script probably in about, two weeks maybe like less than two weeks oh my god 120 pages and um i was literally writing handwriting these pages oh wow and uh so one day when i was there um i had uh, an older woman ask me um if i could help her get a book from one of the shelves mm -hmm. so I, I got up and to do that and when i came back someone had stolen my backpack with all of my pages in it. Oh my gosh, I, I feel that, I can't even imagine. I, You're like, yeah. just leave the pages, take my money, yeah. take, take all of that, but leave my pages. Take the, here, take the wallet, don't take, in the same way, for the same reason, like, you know, they didn't go, aha, I've got the great script now and I'm going to sell it. They were like, oh, this is garbage, and throw this out and, you know. Yeah. And that just, that, that hurts. It just, it really hurts. Yeah, it wounds. So I, I really feel you on that, Darren, because having that experience, I was like, oh no, they could have taken anything else and I would have been mm. okay. You know, it's funny because um, I used to also shoot in Super 8 as well. And so uh, I think when I'm, I just recently moved about a bump, two months ago. And mm -hmm. as I was moving, I, I came across all the, all of my old Super 8 tapes. Oh. And I'm like, what am I supposed to, like, I want to see them. I can't see them. I'm like, right, exactly, exactly. Yeah. I mean, I've you got, have to 
to get them digitized, but you kind of want to see what they are to know which ones you want to hold on to, right? Yeah, yeah. I have Super 8. I got some mini DV stuff. Mm -hmm. I, I even have, sadly enough, some VHF, VHS um, stuff that I've worked on. Oh, and, I love it. And uh, some, I'm, so I'm, I'm currently trying to find easy ways to digitize it so I can mm -hmm. kind of play around with it. Maybe it might be some stuff on there I can use. Absolutely. I think that's really cool. I'm looking over in my apartment. I have all these um, cameras that were used as production design, like Super 8 and stuff, and mm. was considering shooting this dance film with 70-year-olds this fall, sort of a docu-fiction. Oh. But, um, and we were, the idea was we would have a narrative camera. I love using different cameras and seeing how that footage plays against each other in a narrative way. Mm. And so we were going to do a narrative camera and then use these different um, eight millimeters and stuff to shoot specific dance sequences for to tell like the character story like their internal world mm -hmm. but given the pandemic we're probably putting that on hold I don't think bringing a bunch of 70 year olds into right. tight spaces to dance is is advisable or ethical at this moment right. so right. you know like I, I think they would be up for it all the people I know who are dancers they're looking to get out of the house but I just I can't I can't yeah yeah I, I totally understand mm -hmm. that. I totally agree um you sound as, uh, um, like a person who has great technical skills. How, how did you acquire, you know, like, so was there, was this in, 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 in college? Where did you started picking up and how did you start learning all of these skill sets? You know, I'm, I'm one of these people that um, are a little idiosyncratic with my, my journey. So I've, I've worked in many, many different fields. And so in each one, there have been different opportunities mm -hmm. to be on set. Like um, I got to be on set. I was very involved in sports at some point in my early 20s. And I got to be sort of behind the scenes on a TV show about football mm -hmm. and just observed. You know, I really love learning from people and watching and seeing how things happen. So that's how that happens. And then um, here in New York, that's sort of the same thing. I was doing a lot of theater at some point, producing PR, various things and loving it. And then my friends started getting into making short films and other stuff. And so I started making some short films, learning on the side mm -hmm. and then producing. And actually, you know, I think producing was uh, and line producing were great learning tools just to mm -hmm. observe how every department works together, what's needed. But when you're line producing, particularly, you need to understand something about the camera and sound when you're getting orders or pricing or when, when the DP sends the list, you're like, wait, but aren't you missing this? Or, right. you know, what am I doing? And so that just, it, it's, that's really how I learned. I mean, I've taken some classes, some filmmaking classes, but I feel that for me, the bulk of it has been being on set. I don't think that anything replaces that. Right. And, and I've had a lot of actors who've wanted to get into producing. And when they come over to that side and work sort of behind the scenes, they're like, Oh, I had no idea all that goes into make a day or what mm. is needed. And I think that, I don't think that you need to know that. I think when you're an actor on set, you need to hopefully not be thinking about anything else. Like mm. hopefully the set has created the situation where that's the case, but mm. otherwise it's good. Yeah. And, you know, I think having technical knowledge, if you're going to direct, it's just really helpful. It just makes mm. shorthand with your DP and other crew really, really helpful. It's a lot like being, um, music artists in a lot of ways where I think 
the more the more you know, um, the better your 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 your, your project, your, your album, your song is going to be because you can kind of, you know, like if you need to make changes or edits or if there need to be something different about it, you have the technical acumen to kind of have that conversation on a level that you need to have the conversation. So. Exactly. And I think also too, having worked on a lot of different films, they use different cameras on each one. So yeah. I got sort of a test run of seeing like, well, how does that footage look? How does, and I'm, I'm really about the story around the story, like how you tell the story is so important. Right. Um, like what those mechanisms, they, they relay something to your audience um, that's subconscious, but that people pick up on. So watching all these other films I worked on and seeing how the footage affects the audience it was really helpful because then it's like okay i can make a, a more informed decision about what sort of camera i'd want to use on my films or whatnot and that it'll be different based on the film of course right right and um you know so you've worn many hats it seems <laughs> like on the project um producer director um writer i mean you've done pretty much everything is there is there a is there a, a place that you feel like you um, prefer to end up on the project, or does it matter? You know, it probably depends on the project. Um, I'm currently attached to produce a magical realism film, hopefully next year. Um, the director oh. just had a baby, and so we're we're looking at it hopefully for next year. Things will open up and it'll be possible, and I'm excited about that. I love. Mm her vision I love the films that she's made and so mm. that will be great but I think you know I think I've always known since I was little and I went to the movies I think I've always known that probably directing is the most natural fit for me and that's what I felt when I did my feature is I felt really in my element in a way that I I, I, I expected in some ways and in some ways I didn't I just was super happy I love I love collaboration. So I love working with so many different people and making something happen. Mm -hmm. I'm a team builder. That's another skill that I have. And then I've done a lot of volunteer work here in New York, working with different teams and stuff. And I love that. And I feel like a director, a good director builds the team and also creates a really safe space for the actors. And, and then you get to get into the nitty gritty of the script, which is really right. fun. And what does this mean? And really pull it apart. Like, this preposition means this versus that preposition. Mm. And there's just something that's really delightful about that. Uh, so yeah, I think that's probably the thing. I, in terms of writing, I mean, I'm much more likely if I'm inspired, I'll write a project. But mm -hmm. whereas my sister, she's a creative nonfiction writer and I really feel oh. she's a writer. If well, she nice. doesn't, if she doesn't write it's as if her soul dies a little bit. Gotcha. I don't feel that same tug. I can write, and but it will have to be a specific thing. But right. it's not. It's not my soul's journey by any stretch of the imagination. Right, right. Well, I, yeah, I, I totally. I think there's, um, you know, like comedians say that a lot, where um, they they need to be on stage. They need mm -hmm. to be doing what they're doing. And um, if you don't feel that same way, maybe it's not for you to be doing that, you know. Mm -hmm. And I, I, I tend to agree with that because obviously it's a pretty hard profession. And, and I think to the same, same, um, same degree uh, in film, 
there, you know, it's a very intense, it can be very intense and very, um, you know, you're spending a lot of time doing with a small amount of people or big, well, depending on how big the production is. Um, so you have to really want to be doing what you're doing. Um, is there, was there, um, as, as you're growing up and you're seeing all these, these, these projects, were there any projects that you saw in your film, films or theatrical productions that you were like, that's what I want to do. I want to do that one, or I want to do something like that. Yeah, I'm, I'm not sure that I had a light bulb moment, but there are certain films and things that really stick out. Mm -hmm. um, I, I remember I was like two when Jaws came out, I think, and I was taken <laughs> to the movie theater to see it in the theater. And I remember being very terrified. So, and kicking the chair in front of me and the guy was very mad, but it's like, well, <laughs> That's not my, that wasn't my fault. Um, that was, again, my parents letting us watch anything like that. Um, you know, there are certain films that are super iconic for me. Um, definitely, I would say Valley Girl by Martha Coolidge, oh. because I didn't realize it, but there was something to it being shot by a woman. Like when they're at the beach, the way the women in bikinis are shot and the way Nicolas Cage is shot is very different than mm -hmm. I feel it would have been if it had been a male director, potentially just there's just something different about it and I never thought anything about it but I really really loved that film mm. um, and then you know in terms of films that really gut punch me one would have to be Marlon Riggs Tongues Untied um, which mm. I got to go to the 30th anniversary screening last year at BAM and still it was great. I sat next to somebody who had been in the audience when it premiered in San Francisco and on the other yeah. side of me it was a group of young men who had never seen the film and it was just wonderful it's funny you know it's about the intersection really of ethnicity race and um, sexual orientation and and this nexus and it's funny and it's heartbreaking and it's lovely and he was really pushing form at that yeah. time and so yeah. all of his films are really seared in my memory as far as just work that transcends almost film like it's mm. beyond telling a story that you're just, I, I don't know, you're so, so mesmerized. And so it's, it's films like that or, or something like, I remember the first time I saw City of the Lost Children. Oh, I, I, didn't, I didn't actually wanna see that movie, to be honest. Me, it looked kind of like a cartoon to me. I was like, I'm not really interested, but I was with two friends in Seattle and they're like, you're going, we get there. And then I was like, I love this movie. And then when it played at Angelica, like a year or so later, midnight movies for quite mm. a while, I saw it multiple times there. Mm. So, you know, it's things, it's things like that, that, you know, take, take us in or, you know, something by Peter Greenaway, who comes from the painting tradition and feels that our films are too much uh, talk and not enough visuals. So, it, you know, it's really, for me, it's a lot of different, a lot of different things that have really inspired. And of course, coming up in the 90s, where there was so much independent film, and it was really fresh and fun and going to see something and finding a new young director. I don't know, I think all of that was very inspiring. Yeah, the 90s and the, eight, the <clears throat> it's funny, because on my other podcasts, um, we, you know, we do a lot, we obviously we do a lot of movies where we're talking, talking about the films and the soundtracks. Mm -hmm. And we find ourselves, it seems like, 
um, gravitating a lot towards the, 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 the films from the 90s. There's a lot of, um, there's a lot of good stuff that came oh, out yeah. in like, you know, 80, from like 89 to like 96. Mm -hmm. Just so many good um, um, young directors and good young um, cinematographers and like like that yeah. i feel like that was really kind of like this like if there was like um a class of you know whatever of you know of graduation of sorts mm -hmm. there must have been like a lot of guys who who are doing great stuff now kind of started peaking around started coming out around that same time mm -hmm. and um not not coincidentally a lot of the filmmakers of today they kind of look back to those filmmakers back then mm -hmm. as their inspired um, inspirations. Oh, completely. And, you know, it's been really fun. I've been doing some with people I've met randomly on Twitter, like do not know them except for my sister. She's involved somewhat, but mm. we've been live tweeting 80s movies over during the <laughs> pandemic. And it's been really fun to revisit. I mean, some are problematic and have issues and some are, are just as delightful as you remember. Mm. And, um, Tomorrow night, I think we're going to do Dazed and Confused. And I haven't seen that in a while, but you know, like really classic early 90s film. So yeah, I think there's a lot. And I, I just remember I loved going to the movies then. Like it was so mm. fun to be like, what am I going to see? I was just thinking about just another girl on the IRT. I remember going to see that in Philadelphia and just loving it. And always wondering, you know, what happened to the female director of it. And there have been articles that have come out, you know, after anniversaries, just that it was very difficult to then make additional movies. But there are also, there are still directors who are still working and that people are following. Right. Well, exactly. it's kind of like the double-edged sword of sorts and too, like, because even though there were a lot of great directors happening in the 90s and 80s, if you look at the list that's considered top directors or top producers on that list, I'd say 99% of them are men. And that's oh, unfortunate. And, uh, yeah, because you think about Julie Dash, right. Daughters of the... I mean, there are so... And there were so many women. I mean, I know Darnell Martin. I met her actually at Cannes in 94. And mm. she's definitely um, done a lot of directing since then. But seeing her on a panel then was really wonderful because she had... Um, I like it like that was like her thesis film and she was arguing about basically about representation even in school like going to NYU and what that meant and what opportunities and that if you get money for your thesis film from your parents like how is that equitable against you know other students who are competing for the same thing like give right. everybody the same amount of money while you're a student and see who who's the most talented with, within that budget and right. so that was that was also something that really struck struck me and I'm, I've been following her career ever since. Mm. But yeah, there were, it is predominantly men that have, have remained making multiple, multiple films from that era. I, so I'm curious, do you, do you see, um, do you see that changing? Um, like I, I, there's some slight, you know, Hollywood is like this weird beast. Mm -hmm. And, and I think, when it comes to um, women and minority um, creators and, and, and storytellers, and um, it's kind of like, it's always kind of like, well, um, we'll give you this one this year, you know, kind of, 
you know, the Oscars is notorious, obviously, for that that yeah. that that thing where, all right, you know, we'll give you this guy this year or this woman this year. Um, it, it, so just be happy and move on, you know, kind of a thing. I, you know, having the the, the best part about working with independent films that I like, a lot of the filmmakers that I've met and screen their stuff and whatever is that I see how many really talented uh, women directors there are. And it is crazy where that all of these people who exist um, are just now starting to get any kind of recognition. And I mean, it's almost like they kind of have no choice in a lot of ways because one, the public has become a little bit more educated and more uh, aware of their, their options. And then the distribution chain, um, the, distrib you know, the, 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 the distribution chain has changed in such a way that the, there's almost not enough content where you, and they have no choice to kind of say, we need content and these women are doing good stuff. It makes no sense for us not to be working with them. And um, I hope that that continues to, to like be the case. I hope there's more minority women. I hope there's more women. I hope there's more, everybody just should be able to create that. I think it just should come down to what's good, you know, so. Yeah, I think so. And I think, I think there are a lot of questions around that. Um, I mean, I think there are definitely some shining examples that we've started to see around women, um, like the Candyman trailer just drops, right? Um, directed by mm. Nia Tacosta, who Little Woods, really, really amazing. Um, Chloe Zhao I, uh, has, you know, the big movie coming out as well. Mm. And The Rider was one of my favorite films that I've seen in the last, I don't even know how long. I love that film. I thought it was mm. so beautiful. And I, so there, there are, there are glimmers and glimpses of hope. I think what it is, is it's sort of the moment that we're in right now with what's happening in the world is that um, anti-racism isn't just today. Right. Anti-racism is every day and something that we'll be working on for the rest of our lives. And right. for me as, as a white woman. And I think that that's the hope is that it's not, like you said, not just a moment that it comes right. up, right. Um, but that we'll see. And, and I hope that the conversations that we're having now will, will also change. Like I have a friend who did get to shoot her feature, but when she mentioned that the leads were going to be um, people of color, mm -hmm. she actually had investors who backed out, who said, I'm not going to support that. Interesting. And I'm, I'm hoping that at that point, things will, will change. I mean, obviously she was able to get the money and was able to make her film, which which is great and yep. wonderful for the people who supported it. Yep. But I think there is some education that needs to happen ar around, around these issues from right. the start, from the people who are putting money in. Right. And, uh, you know, and also understanding it is a gamble no matter who you bank on. But we see many male filmmakers whose films at least appear not to be profitable in any way, but get right. to continue to make films. And it's just like give give other people that chance to really. Right, right. Well, um, <clears throat> you know, um, I I think, like you said, I think, yeah, this is, we're, we're kind of just at the beginning of a lot of changes that are going to happen across 
you know, I mean, so it's an, you know, without getting into a very political conversation, <laughs> it is a very interesting time right now because I feel like, like we're, it's, um, like multiple groups are coming out and saying that enough is enough. We just need, we just, we, we just want to be treated as equal. You know what I mean? And, and right, you know, so we're going to see a completely different world in the next five years, six years, whatever it is. And I'm, you know, I hope that, you know, what will end up happening is, is that it also changed the kind of stories that get told too, which that I'm very excited about because I do like seeing other people's stories and other people in, in different, like, so I was, I think the last year, the year before last, someone asked, I, like, I haven't acted in a while. So mm -hmm. I, I kind of not been focusing on that. But I recently, like maybe a year, year and a half ago, I let a couple of people know that I, with certain roles, maybe I would be, I consider it. And someone came to me with a role. It's the first role I've done, I probably would have been considered for in probably 10, 15 years or so. Mm -hmm. And it was a role of a pimp. And I was just like, no, thank you. I'm, it just made me so mad because the first role in 10 years and that was the role that I was offered. I was just like, really people? Seriously, are we still doing that? Yeah. Yeah. We're still doing that. I think that, I think that that's the problem. And I think, I think to speak to your point, there, there are a couple of things. And I think, I think actors, even, even some of my cast members on my film, the subject have talked about that. Like this mm. moment has really made them think about, what they're getting cast in right. and how how they are a tool for you know they don't want to be a tool for oppression and oppressive stories right. and i think that i think that that's really great right. so i think there are a couple of things and i i'm with you i think the world is going to continue to change over the next five years i'm very excited about it mm. i think there are two things in terms of different stories we're taught a lot about structure when it comes to screenwriting and i get it i think structure makes people feel safe right. three acts i know what i'm going to go and see right. there are plenty of um, superhero movies that are going to give you that right. you know you're going to hit these beats i'm going to feel good i could watch it with it on in the background while while paying bills or talking to somebody else, I don't right. have to fully invest myself necessarily in that. I, I right. do maybe when I go to the theater and there's a big group of people, sure, and it's right. fun. But sometimes I've found that, and it, it's not 100%, but that stories written by um, female identified writers or people of color, et cetera, um, don't necessarily follow that same arc. Right. that same narrative structure right. and you know i think that that's happened in the literary world too mm. um you know tony morrison really messed with structure in so <laughs> many ways and ways that are, i love i think are right. wonderful and i can't stop reading you know but but yet there's still somewhat of an establishment that says well that's not how you do it that's not how you tell the story and it's like i'm excited actually that maybe it's not just what the stories are, but how right. they're told that yep. will be different because that's, that's the exciting 
exciting thing about film, right? Yeah. I had somebody who described it once that it's sort of like hypnosis. Like that's the idea mm -hmm. where you shut off. It really uses the same sort of tricks that hypnosis does. And to me, like that taps into subconscious. And that's the beautiful thing that half a second image can plant something, a memory or a seed into the viewer's brain. Right. And they'll totally get the story within that half a second. And I, right. lo I love that. And then I think the other part, you know, Yes, it's about the roles that are conceived for actors and how that happens. But I also think one of the things we've been seeing is who's your crew? How, mm -hmm. how are you staffing up? And that was one of the things that was really, really important to me was mm -hmm. that, you know, here we're telling a story that has um, a white male lead, but pretty much everybody else in the story is black or a person of color, Latin, you know, Latinx, et cetera. Mm -hmm. So I didn't want our crew to be all white. Like that would just have been, I, I don't know, I would have been very sad. And in fact, um, I think there was only one department head that, who was white um, mm -hmm. outside of me directing the film really, or no two, but everybody else wasn't. And, and it was a great mix of men and women. And I'm not saying we did it perfectly, but right. I felt like if I'm putting out a film that has a certain value set, I need to have that behind the scenes as well. Sure. The creation of it to me was, and how we created it was just as important as the finished product, because I don't want to be abusive in my work relationships. And let's face it, sometimes sets can feel that way sure. um, in terms of the amount of time you have to spend, how people talk to you, treat yeah. you, like all of that. And, and it just was not something that I felt uh, expressed my values with that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I totally agree with 100% of what you just said. And um, it just, I mean, um, I'm hoping, you know, hope for I hope for the best with for 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 the future of film and it's great because um just seeing all this um like I've seen some works by some people who have sent me stuff that they've been doing during covid and um some really really good stuff like some really good pieces not not um feature length things but mostly like short films that they kind of use to kind of promote you know how they feel or tell people how they feel and that kind of thing yeah um i think it's just uh it's it's great and, you know film is um you know we it's it's such a it's like you said it's a very um since it's so visual and and, and so impactful on like you know, the government used to use like film to motivate people to, to action during the war. You know, they would make those films to get people all like emotional about what was going on in the world and, and stuff. And so that that was to me a, a clear cut sign that, you know, how impactful it is um, when a group is, um, when a story is done right and tells people or motivates people toward an action. So I think that's another reason why it's very important to um, to have, like when you do, when you're creating this this team of people, um, it, it does help to, to, to be um, genuine in how you build your team. Um, because I think, like you said, like I, there's, I won't say who, 
but there is a I've had I've had bad experiences on sets and those experiences actually led me to become a filmmaker so that way I could mm -hmm. kind of you know do undo what they did to did during my experience and mm -hmm. I think that um was my way of kind of saying uh, uh, this was unpleasant mm -hmm. uh, but instead of just being um being negative about it i decided to move forward and use that experience to build a more positive experience um for the film the people that i work with and i hope that's what most people will end up doing in this time is take what's happening around us like today i'm going and shooting some of the protests mm -hmm. and um you know i feel like there is you know there's two ways i could go about it i can go about it and be like this salacious individual trying to capture only the negative things about this experience or i could kind of involve and embrace the experience of people coming together in this positive energy and really trying to tell a story uh, about you know positivity and and you know and so that's I'm curious to see how it's going to go first. Um, we'll see. Um, yeah, of course. What's, um, what's, is, was there any project that you, um, like that's come out in recent times that you thought I would love to have been part of that, that project? Any film or theatrical prediction that you said, oh. that is something I would love to, to, to like, produce on or direct on or something oh that's that's a great question um i tend it's weird like i might be able to be jealous in my personal life unfortunately <laughs> but generally not creatively like generally i'm a cheerleader and super happy oh, cool. for 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 people who are doing it because i feel like we're all in this together and we get to be in conversation like hopefully i'll get to make something that is um in reference to that mm. um you know there are probably a lot of things that have really um, inspired me there was a film just a little while ago called and he has a new one coming out called um god's own country and it was his first mm. film uh in his late 40s british filmmaker it's a it's a um, gay romance and oh. i just i loved it and it was oh, one of these films yeah, i saw it at ifc and it was like a late, it was like the last night I think it was showing, late screening, but totally packed. And mm. when I went to the restroom, my friend and I, when we were in there, there were two other women and they had to talk to us about the film because mm -hmm. it just left such, such um, an imprint. So that would be one. Mm. Um, another one would be this um, African film Rafiki. Also, it's a lesbian love story. Mm. And it also, the bright colors, the acting, everything about it but honestly when the film ended i saw it at bam when it ended there everybody that was in there stayed to the very final credits and mm. a couple of minutes after no one wanted to get out of their seats because you didn't want to give up the feeling that the film had inspired it was so hopeful mm. and beautiful and they it just ended on virtual cinema i think this week mm. um but it's a film that has just stayed with me i so i don't know if i'm jealous but they're films that i'm like i want to create that feeling in people when they see it where they want to talk mm. to you about it when you're in the restroom and they don't even know you they're like did you just see that film oh my god yeah. or 
or, or that everybody just sits final credit rolls and you just look at everybody and you're like, that was something. I'm trying to remember the last time that's happened to me. I know exactly that feeling. That is an, that is a crazy feeling when like people stay until the lights actually come on yeah. and they're kind of like in shock. Like what just happened to us? Right. That is crazy. Yeah. And that we were all feeling that it was like, we felt like our hearts were outside of our bodies kind of, and we just kind of wanted to protect it and, and stay in that moment and not leave mm. it. And then of course the ushers come in and they're like, uh, you gotta leave. <laughs> we're like, okay, we're going to leave now. Oh, you know what I remember? Well, maybe you can't, I can't compare it, but I remember this happening, um, at, um, a star is born. It was mm. absolutely the craziest thing I've ever seen. Like, I'm sitting there watching this movie and you can hear all around me in the dark, people crying mm -hmm. at the end of the movie. And then the lights come up and you hear me, you know, sniffing to get up. And I was just like, that to me is the best. Like if I was, yeah, I told like, if I were the filmmaker, if I were Bradley Cooper mm -hmm. and I was sitting in that theater at that very moment, man, I mean, what else can, that's, that's all you, I mean, that's, you know. Yeah, no, that's transcendent. Those moments, you're just like, yeah, that's exactly the power of the work that we do and, and to have it connect. I mean, there's mm -hmm. nothing like that. And and to have people feel like they connect, right? Mm -hmm. And and he did such a great job on that film. His directing was really, really magical. Yeah, it was, um, it was, a, it was um, the, I think it was just the way the ending of the movie wrapped mm -hmm. up was just, very well done and uh mm -hmm. yeah I, I love it when uh when people like um i remember um seeing um loss in translation for the first time mm -hmm. yeah. um, i'm a big fan of sofia coppola and yeah. um I, I, you know i i'd lived in japan so me ah. seeing this movie mm -hmm. really hit home because that's it, it was exactly how i felt in the moment yeah. of being in, in Tokyo. And um, I remember walking out of that theater just kind of like, I, I don't know, it was like I was, I was back in Japan suddenly. It was mm -hmm. very weird. Mm -hmm. And so that was, you know, it's, it, it was, you know, when you can do that to us, to a, to a, an audience, um, really, just push the buttons or bring them to a moment or help them identify with the characters on screen or, um, or even better to me is when you leave that theater and it motivates you to do something um, because you learned something in the theater. That to me is, um, that's, when, that's when it's all worth all, all those 14 hour days on mm -hmm. set in the you know in the cold or mm -hmm. in the rain or you know without eating or <laughs> whatever you had to do to mm -hmm. make that project you know it's it's always worth it's all worth it yeah it is I, I you know it brings me back to like i said going to see kramer versus kramer with my mom and discussing mm. it afterwards like that's to me the great delight of seeing something and being moved by it is to have a great discussion afterwards yeah, um i will kramer. i i will say though if you're on my set you, you will eat 
that is always <laughs> promised. There's no, I, I, if I have low energy, like it's not going to happen. So right. eating, I'm like very obsessed with eating and crafty for, for my crew, not, are, not just for me, but for everybody. <laughs> that is, that is the set I want to hang out on because that's, yeah, I've been on some sets where I'm just like, so we're just having a bag of crackers. That's it. That's cool. Oh yeah. No, so, no, no, literally no. Changed my life doing like I remember doing um I was doing a commercial for UPS and uh oh it was for the Olympics when it was mm -hmm. held here in New York and they were doing a commercial for the UPS for UPS and we were at some high school stadium in New in Queens and it was like I think the day was like 110 degrees and we had we were there for at least nine hours reshooting over and over and they didn't have not a drop of water for anyone. I was like, that's criminal. That's are you criminal. insane? Yeah. And, and I think most of the people that they were paying were like, I think it was like 50 bucks for the, for the eight hours. I was just like, wow, that's just, wow that's that's terrible yeah my um my favorite childhood story of mine my mom loves to tell is i was like four and i came home and i said hey i don't really think i need to go to church anymore and she was like lanny what are you talking about you love going to church what's the problem i said well they said they weren't going to serve any more juice and crackers so i just don't really see why i need to go <laughs> <laughs> and she was like don't worry we'll have juice and crackers so she would bring me juice and crackers so i'm uh, i mean i'm <laughs> that so that's that's the level i'm still that four-year-old so it's like people are going to be fed they're going to have water like i there's just no way i i don't understand it <laughs> that's hilarious you know, i mean i'd worked it out what was the what was the point of going <laughs> that is yeah exactly <laughs> You know, as children, we, we are, like, they do sometimes come up with the most amazing observations, so. Mm -hmm. Exactly. Um, and one thing I would wanted to talk about as an observation was your latest project, the subject. Yeah. Really good. Thank you. Thank you. Really good. Um, what inspired this film? Yeah, you know, um, it's written by Chisa Hutchinson, who, if you don't know her work uh, as a theater artist, you should. Mm. She also has a lot of uh, film projects in the works right now that are going to be um, less independently produced than mine, like bigger companies are behind them and so deserved. And I had known Chisa actually in theater. We worked on a project a decade ago mm. called Seven Sins in 60 Minutes, where a different female identified playwright wrote a scene of, of one of the sins and she had lust and it was really funny it was done in the dark under a sheet it was hilarious the audience loved it and it was a little it was a little naughty in a good way you know the best <laughs> ways that they are and so we we had kept in touch and I was looking to direct something and I actually asked uh, a bunch of people to send me scripts and I got 42 and hers was the one that I just kept coming back to. It just was a story. As I said, I grew up in Memphis. I was born, you know, I mean, a, a little bit past when Martin Luther King Jr. was assassinated in mm. my city and when um, sanitation workers had to hold signs that declared their personhood. I mean, I still mm. cry every time I see a, a picture of I am a man that 
somewhere nearish my lifetime that someone would have to hold a sign to declare that is really it's just really affecting so the issues that she was dealing with in the screenplay uh, I was very I was very drawn to I also felt like there were a lot of really good roles so we could get actors you know that's the first thing like the actor is going to want to know what am I playing and who am I playing and so I felt like oh I think we can get talent for this as well but it's also something I want to put out in the world uh, she had written it actually originally as a play and changed it to a screenplay somebody else had optioned it for a while but uh, which I just found out and wasn't able mm. to make it which often happens as we know mm -hmm. and she was inspired a lot by a couple of different things one was that photo starving child and vulture that won the pulitzer prize in the early 90s uh, where the photographer said he saw in sudan the starving child hunched over there was a vulture behind the photographer kevin carter waited for 20 minutes to see if the vulture would open its wings so he could get a better photo mm. didn't happen took the photo then scared the vulture away but never knew what happened to the child and everybody who saw the photo the first question they had is the child alive the child was walking to a un center for food what mm. is known as the child did make it to that center but died 10 or 11 years later of malaria, I believe, very mm -hmm. sadly. Um, but this idea of what was the photographer's responsibility, you're taking this photo, then are you responsible for making sure that this kid is okay? Right. And, you know, whether that's, whether that's our own um, sort of internal morality or whether we as artists have any morality to whether it for a documentary filmmaker to the subjects we're shooting like you mm -hmm. said you you you're wondering about going to shoot the protest yeah what is your responsibility as an artist as you're going out there what is your exactly. lens it's and it's something that i think sometimes we don't question enough i mean some right. people do but i think sometimes we don't but then also i thought about it as actors and as we've had this discussion our 14 hour days right. exploited it. Mm. We, we didn't, we never had a 14 hour day on, on our shoot. And um, I don't believe in them. I, I, I get it, but I don't believe in them because right. I don't think people do their best work at that point. Right. Or, you know, I've heard of other directors who like to really put actors through their paces to get, to get the emotion that they need. You know, they're going to make them do something over 50 times to get it. And I think that that's your process. That's not mine. Like I trust the actors I bring on can act and can right. do what I'm asking them to do. So right. I think all of those questions I was really interested in. And so mm. I was like, let's do this Chisa. And you know, she had no real reason to trust me in doing that. And that she took that leap of faith. I'm really, I'll be eternally grateful because it, it's been just the highlight of my life in many ways. It is a question. It was a good question. It was a it was a great question that was posed by the film to me. And it was funny because before I saw it um, on Facebook in a group, we were talking this one film group, someone actually posed a question about shooting film, um, shooting the protest, which is, mm -hmm. you know, what, like, what would you do if you take photos at the protests and then someone tells you they don't want you to use their 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 photos mm -hmm. like what would you do or, or do you decide not to like how do you handle the rights of the persons mm -hmm. when you're taking it and i i don't know if there's a 
a great answer for it. I, I, I think my feedback was that if someone would, like if someone, if I would point my camera at someone and they told me they didn't want me to take their picture, most likely I would not do it unless I thought it was going to be to compromise. Like I'm not a, I'm not a, um, I'm not a journalist, mm -hmm. you know, I'm a, I'm an artist. Yeah. You know what I mean? So I'm, you know, if I were a journalist, maybe my responsibility changes because maybe what they're trying to ask me not to take is to hide the truth about something. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, but, you know, as an artist, I don't, I think, yeah, it gets a little bit more gray because much like that story, if, if, it, if it, you, you know, if you're taking a picture of a man being robbed, I feel like that's gotta be a little wrong. I think I I I, I get that this, the the picture and the composition and all this stuff might be important to capture, mm -hmm. but I personally, and this is just my personal view, is I couldn't take that photo in good conscience while someone else is being at the at the expense of someone else being robbed. Yeah, I think. And I think that that's, you know, that's really one of the questions that the film asked. And it's an interesting one. And I think it's a question mm. that's not just for artists. I mean, most people have cameras on their cell phones. Right. And so some of it is also um, that, like, what do you do? And, you know, it was interesting after I'd shot the film, we weren't quite in picture lock. I was at an event at BAM and I happened, it's one of these where you sit down and you have dinner and you're not assigned tables. And I happened to sit down with two people who are very, very involved in documentary. Mm. Uh, one is a producer, one is a pretty famous documentarian. Who, who knew that I would sit next to them? Had a lovely chat. Mm. But I will say um, when I brought up this, subject of my film, they were pretty much unequivocal. You keep the camera on. That's what documentary filmmakers do. That mm. is where their, you know, their ethos lies. And I get it. I'm wondering if, yeah, I think right now we're questioning, um, was, is the status quo, was it, was it good for us? Right. And does it remain the status quo? And I'll be very intrigued to mm. find out how that affects documentary or what happens um, right. going forward, but also how it affects us. If we see something on the street, do you step in and say something or right. not? And right. I mean, these, these are different than say what happened with um, George Floyd or Rodney King. Right. When it's state-sponsored violence, it's a much different question right. to, my, to my mind. It's just really, really different in terms of the dynamics of, of the situation. Like, how, right. do you, how do you necessarily step in against four police officers? Um, that, very, very difficult. Yep. But, but when it's just people on the street, it is interesting what happens. And mm. yeah, and, and how do we intervene? And then also the other question is, do you profit off of this? Then you yeah. show it. Yeah. And then you make money off of it. Wow, where is your humanity and your artistry? Yeah, is the question. Yeah, it's it is definitely you know it all, it's it's the same conversation that I'm having with comedians in the sense mm -hmm. that right, how much can like wh where's the line basically? Mm -hmm. Where is the line between being insensitive and telling the truth? Mm -hmm. And um, from from a from the filmmaker standpoint, from the 
from the journalist standpoint, from the doctor, like there's so many different view, like angles to kind of mm-hmm. answer that question. And I think, you know, I think, I think it's just going to have to be a case by case situation, I think in a lot of ways. Yeah. And I think, but I think what's great is that we're having these conversations yep. because I think without this moment that we're in right now, um, this movement, that these questions weren't being asked and weren't being asked enough. And in fact, before actually earlier this year, we talked to somebody who's a social impact producer about the film and like ways to get it out and different things. And one of the first things she said is I would want it shown at every film school and Mm -hmm. have filmmakers debate and figure it out for themselves. She's like, it's, you know, it's okay if you have a different answer as to how you would treat a subject or how you would film, but you need to have the discussion to know Mm -hmm. really where you stand. And I was like, Oh, that, that's a, great idea. I would love to have those conversations or inspire them or have mm-hmm. them use the film as a reference because I, I think there's a lot to unpack. Well, I and think she did a great a, job with that. Yeah. It would be a great film to show to high school students for hundred percent. Yeah. Because to get them starting to think about these, uh, these conversations. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And everybody, great... yeah, sorry. No, no, it's great. I think it would be great. I think so too. And you know, We've had discussions. We won't. We're only in our second festival right now. You know, the world, the pandemic sort of upended our festival <laughs> run a little bit. Moved, right. moved where our premieres were going to happen and all of that. We're rolling with the punches. We totally understand. Um, mm-hmm. So we have more coming out. We are only in our second festival run. But what's been great is the sort of feedback we've been getting, and that people want to talk about it and show it to their friends and talk about the issues um, that are in the film. You know, like white saviorhood because that, mm-hmm. that becomes, you know that that has been a question with a lot of people around the film because Jason Biggs plays the lead in many ways um, but it's actually a film that interrogates white saviorhood and other right. movies that that use that trope in a in a huge way and I really credit Chisa for writing such a nuanced and layered script and also Jason for giving a performance that helps you yeah. do that in fact I had we had one comment, it was so beautiful afterwards. It was by a white woman who said, mm-hmm. by seeing the lead's blind spots, she for the, and she's pretty liberal too. She said she, she for the first time saw her own when it comes mm. to, to issues. And I was like, oh, that's exactly what we hope. I was like, okay, if, if that happens a couple more times, I'd be super happy, you know, to have people look at themselves. And I think, I think that that's, what also really intrigued me is that the character isn't a mustachio twirling evil person. Right, right. He's somebody that some people might be able to identify with. And that in some ways makes us feel a little bit maybe more discomfort in watching, but also can make us see ourselves more. Right. Yeah. And I think that's the key, right? You want to create this character, um, where that people can identify with mm-hmm. and um not it's almost like you you, you don't want to put them on the like i find like sometimes when certain subjects are talked about you if you put a if you put the person watching it on the defensive they don't receive the information as as, as easy as if you try to at least get them to identify with that person or that character or that situation. And then at some point you hope they have this kind of an aha moment where they go, 
Yeah. Yeah. I think when we, when we create a lot of distance between the viewer and the people on screen, it allows us to judge the other person and say, Oh, that's not me. I would never, I would never do that. I would never be that person. But when we create characters who hew a little closer to who we might be, they have flaws, but we also see things they're working on. Then I think it's much more likely that we're open to seeing ourselves in them and not just outright judging them. We can still judge them. Right. Then within that, I think we're looking at ourselves where there's introspection that happens. It's, um, it's kind of like, um, the difference between a stranger coming to you on the street and telling you you're you're an asshole, mm-hmm. and your best friend saying, "Hey, uh, you know, you're kind of an asshole." Take that <laughs> so, information a little different. You're like, "What? Why? Why? Why me?" You know. So, yeah, exactly. Exactly. Um, and, and I think that the film does a great job of of kind of of, of getting close to the viewer. Um, like nuzzling up next to the viewer and saying, hey, as your friend here, you know. Yeah, and I, and you know, it's kind of wild that the film is hitting right now. Mm. Um, it, it wasn't what we planned or expected because we shot the film a while ago. It's been yeah. ready to go for a while. But like I said, our, because of the pandemic, our, our uh, opening was a little bit later than, it, than expected, which is fine. Right. But Actually, I think it kind of worked out because I think this adds to the conversations that are ongoing mm-hmm. um, and, and are parts of the things that we need to imp- uh, unpack. I, I also know that there are people who are wildly different than I am politically who have watched the film. Mm-hmm. Um, they and I will not be voting for the same person when it comes mm-hmm. to president. Um, and they've watched the film multiple times and have reached out to talk to me about the issues. And it's like, wow, okay, yes, let's talk about it. And we were able to talk about things that if we sort of posed a question on Facebook, I don't think we would be able to talk about it. But having the film and the action in the film has has given us something to really talk about. And and in a way, it's personal in that you feel the things, but it depersonalizes it so you're not just getting angry and you can actually have a conversation. And that's what I do love about (laughs) art. When I when this movie is readily available to, to the public, mm-hmm. I have a friend I'm going to send this to. Okay, so great. That, because they need to see this film very much so. Mm-hmm. I won't say much more than that. All mm-hmm. I'm going to say is that they're my friend. I love them, but they are wrong, wrong, wrong. <laughs> I, think, I think a number of us have friends like that and are yeah. like... And that's a great, like she said when we, when we were doing our first screening said, invite your aunt Karen. Yeah. And it was like, yeah, that's exactly, that's exactly yeah. what we want. Right. Like invite aunt, your Karen, aunt Karen, invite your aunt Karen, <laughs> aunt Karen, come and see this movie and let's talk. Mm. And, yeah. and yeah, my, my aunt Karen did see the movie and we've had conversations and that's, mm. you know, that's what we hope. And it's not that I think like, look, my, I don't think any film, and particularly my film, can cure systemic structural racism. No. I don't think that. Right. I do think it can plant seeds for conversation. Right. And we know that, as you said, like, you know, an aha moment happens at some right. point. Right. But there have probably been about 50 moments leading up to that right. that get you to the aha moment. Exactly. Right? Like that, exactly. that 
take you there. And I'm hoping just that for people who watch the subject, that this is one of those 50 moments on the way to the aha of like, what have I been doing my whole life? Like that, that would be wonderful. Yeah, I, I truly hope so too. Where, so um, what's next for the film? Yeah, so we've got a number of festivals. We can't announce them quite yet because okay. like I said, they've moved off. Um, we've got quite a few coming up. And so hopefully this fall we'll have a lot of information about where you can see them. We're also waiting to hear from a bunch of other festivals. I'm just going to give a shout out to anybody who's a festival director right now because I cannot imagine the hard decisions they are having to make to yep. try and keep their audiences, also honor filmmakers and their work. Like all of it is so tough. So the decisions that they're making, I, I really admire and I admire the time and energy that they're putting into it. Yeah. And I'm also grateful that I'm not having to do that. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, so we, I would say just follow us on um, social media, Instagram, where and Twitter, where the subject at the subject film, mm -hmm. and then on on Facebook, where the subject movie and why. And those two, those three places are great ways. We'll be updating, and you know, hopefully, hopefully, getting the film out there. I would really love for it to be seen. You know, as any filmmaker, the original dream was a week, at least a week in New York and LA, like on a screen, seeing it on a big screen. Mm. Um, but we did do a cast and crew screening just to see it on a big screen. Uh, we did it at the IFC Center, but it was only, it was a private screening only for cast and crew. Mm. So I've gotten to see it in that way. And, and I think if I hadn't, I'd probably be more bummed about not being able to go to film festivals and see it on a big screen. But because True. of that and getting to share that, that experience with everybody, um, I feel I feel good. And so I'm fine if it gets just out on a streaming or something like that. That would be wonderful because I do want people to see it and talk about it. Well, I I have great admiration for what you guys have done with this. Thank you. And I am hopeful that this will be seen by people and loved and you know, Netflix, get on it. <laughs> Somebody. Yeah, do this. Because Darren has a friend who has to see it. So, you know, I, at the very exactly. least, <laughs> Netflix. <laughs> Just do it for me. Mm -hmm, for Darren. That's all you need to know, right? <laughs> yeah. That, no, and it's, it's so funny because now that it's had a semi-premiere, I have so many people, you know, and you know how this is. Like, until, because we won a, a bunch of awards in our first festival. We took Best yeah. Film, Best Director, Best Performance for Anjanou Ellis, who I should give a shout out to, yeah. who is an actor talking about the mid-90s. She was in Girls Town, and since I saw her in that, I was like, I have to work with her. And then mm -hmm. to get to do it so many years later, I'm so blessed. Um, but, you know, once we won the awards, now everybody's like, well, where can I see it? What can happen? I was like, well, I've given you the Yes, but that's okay. That's okay. I, I'm probably the same way with their films and stuff too. So I get it. Mm. But yeah, now there's definitely a bigger appetite because somebody said that it was worthwhile seeing. So hopefully, hopefully yeah. more people will get to see it. Well, I'm sure they will. And until then, I will whisper about it until it's out. And um, thank you for sharing that with me. Thank yeah. you for sharing your story with me. Yeah, thank you for this interview. It's been really fun, Darren. And we need to hang out more, whether it's on Zoom or in real life, for sure. We definitely, actually, we did, we're we going to have some conversation. I have some other stuff I'm cooking up in the background. So awesome. we'll, you know, we'll, we will stay in touch for sure. Great. Thank you so much for being on the podcast.
thank you. Thank you so much. And I can't wait to, um, to shout it out and let other people listen to it. We've got a really strong team who loves supporting and, and listening. So I really appreciate you taking the time. All right. Talk to you okay. soon. Okay. Bye. Bye. <laughs>